0: Gospel of John. Surprise, surprise. Uh, chapter 14. Uh, and, and yes, this chapter, as I said last week, and I'll say this week, um, has, has uh, caused us to stop and pause in a lot of areas Because it is uh, tremendously rich with doctrine. And so, though we are going to read verses 15 through 24, we are only really going to take a couple verses out of this this week, and Lord willing, take up the rest of this passage uh, next Sunday. So, it's one of those rich passages that calls for some extra examination. And so, we're going to take the time to diligently pursue God's word, look through it, and uh, give it the attention it deserves. And so, if you found your place in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, would you? You stand for the honor of reading God's word together as we acknowledge that our God has spoken to us. The God of gods, the only God, the one true God has spoken to us, his people. John 14, we're going to read verses 15 through 24 again. And here is what the precious, infallible word of God says. It says, If you love me, Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank him for his word now. Father, as we consider this crucial text to the Christian life, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the relationship between obedience and prayer, between love and obedience, and between the love and obedience that's talked about in this passage with our assurance of our faith. Lord, there is rich doctrine to be examined here today. Lord, doctrine that's good for the soul, doctrine that encourages, doctrine that causes us to depend ever more on you. And we pray that, Father, we'd submit to that doctrine That our lives would be under the examination of the Word of God. Lord, in all this, you'd be honored and glorified to work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you remember last week, in last week's sermon, at the end of it, we had begun to talk about prayer. And really, uh, we, we gave thought to the idea that when we pray, remember we ought to pray in Jesus' name, which is simply more than just ending our prayers by saying in Jesus' name. We actually learned that to pray in Jesus' name is to give attention to these four filters that are going to be up on the screen for you here, uh, that, that we pray within these. That is according to Jesus' fame and not our own. According to Jesus' divine worth and not our own, his worthiness, he is worthy, we are not. It's he who receives all glory, not us. We are to pray with that filter on. We are to pray according to his payment, his work of redemption. Don't you dare come to Christ with request, request not resting in the gospel of grace. And then finally, praying according to his sovereign wisdom and not our own. Um, Well, this morning what we're going to do is begin with this subject right where we left off, the subject of prayer. And we're going to do so because the connection is very clear between verses 14 and 15 of our text this morning. And so what I'd like to do is really read verses 14 through 16 all together and see if you can see how this sort of is supposed to flow. John 14, starting in verse 14 through 16. Listen to this. It says, Jesus says if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. See, when we read the text in this way, it's a little bit easier to see the connection between prayer and obedience. Jesus tells us how we are to pray in verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He teaches us how to pray. But then he's going to continue to bring up the subject of love and obedience and follows that up with what it is he is going to pray for. So as we consider verse 15, in light of the context of what becomes before it and after, the first thing we notice from this text this morning is we see how God's commandments relates to prayer. How obedience to the commandments of God relates to prayer. This is what we see this morning. How obedience relates to prayer. Now this isn't the only place that we find this relationship between obedience to God's commandments and prayer. In fact, actually what Brother John Walters just read out of Isaiah 1 is a perfect illustration of of this exact thing. God is basically, if you listen to that text at all, he's basically reprimanding and rebuking his people. And then he says in verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, guess what I'm going to do? I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. Then what does he say? Obey me. He says, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These are all things that if you notice are aligned with the commandments of God. They're in accordance with his commandments. God says, I'm not going to hear your prayers anymore because your hands are filthy with blood. You're full of sin. So return to obeying my commandments. Be right with me. Walk in fellowship, unhindered fellowship with me. You'll be right with me. Start walking my ways and then I will hear your prayers. We also see in 1 John chapter 3 verses 22 through 24, the word of God says, and and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So there can be no doubt that there is is some sort of connection here between obedience to what God commands and prayer. It's clear in the text. Now, Let's clarify some things about this text because it it seems kind of murky to us. It seems like God is is working kind of a works-based relationship with us. So let's examine it a little bit further. I think the first thing we want to look at as we examine the relationship between obedience and prayer is, of course, it's the fact that none of us can ever be obedient enough to earn anything from the Lord, not even answered prayer. There is not a one of us here who has been obedient enough to God that we have earned his answered prayer. That should be given among our group here, shouldn't it? That God hears and answers any of our prayers is nothing less than the grace of God. And that's all that it is. With that said, the scriptures do indicate that there is a relationship between these two things. This does not mean that our obedience earns God's favor to our answered prayers. I want to emphasize that fact as, as, as R.C. Sproul put it, the, the late great theologian put this, he put it well, as he often did. He said, ultimately, any affirmative answer to prayer comes when we pray according to God's will, 1 John 5, 14. If we do what pleases God, 1 John 3, we evidence a good knowledge of his word and thus of his will those who obey God's will also pray God's will and have their prayers answered in accordance with his will. See, that's how it works. When you you are living in God's will, you're being obedient to what he desires for your life. Part of your obedience is praying according to God's will. That's where the answered prayer comes in. You are praying in accordance to God's will, and God is happy and pleased to answer those prayers. Now, now, given that it's not the case that obedient earns God's answers, let's look at another interesting tidbit from this passage. It is this. It, it is the case, though it isn't the case that our obedience earns God's favor, it is the case that our disobedience can be a direct cause for unanswered prayer our disobedience can be a direct cause for unanswered prayer. After all, what would cause any of us to believe that we could go on living in blatant, unrepentant sin and think that God is going to answer our prayers? It doesn't even logically make sense. Isn't there something obviously wrong with approaching prayer that way? In Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, 18, I think Brother Brad preached this psalm, it, we read this, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. When, when we go to God in prayer, it's not as though we're entering into a chamber where our sin is left at the door and it's out of God's sight and knowledge completely. It's not as if all of a sudden our sin just becomes invisible to God because we entered into the prayer closet. That's not the case. When we go to him in prayer, he sees and knows everything about us, even the secret things in our hearts. That's why, by the way, it's important for us to always be dealing with our sin on a daily basis, to daily be confessing our sin. You cannot allow sin in your life to build and build without ever dealing with it and think everything is going to be okay with your relationship between you and the Lord. This is not the case. Your prayer life is and will be hindered by unrepentant sin in your life. Now, it's not as if we ever get to the place where where we have no sin where we come before God in prayer. Or in worship. But friends... It's one thing to recognize that we are sinful, and it's another thing to reject the Holy Spirit's conviction of some known sin in our lives, thus coming before God in prayer while having to deal or not dealing with the five-ton elephant in the room. You go before the Lord and you have this heavy heart. We've all experienced this, haven't we? Because I I think there's been a point in all of our time, of our lives, where we've dealt with unrepentant sin and then we tried to pray. And let's let's just examine what happens then. Maybe, hopefully, it's the case for you because it's the case for everyone. You go before the Lord, you have this heavy heart because you really know that you haven't been faithful and walking in His ways in any way, shape, or form. You haven't been asking for forgiveness. You haven't been confessing sin or seeking his grace for repentance in your life. And you know as well as I do, because it happens too frequently in my own life, we come before the Lord and prayer just becomes a really hard time for us because we're living in blatant, unrepentant sin. So we get to the point where we don't even want to pray or know how to pray because you have to deal with this sin before you have an unhindered relationship with the Lord. You've got to confess it. And what's funny about this is is we would know theologically, we would apply that the Lord already knows. He knows exactly that you've been in rebellion to Him. You might as well confess it and ask Him to forgive you of that sin so you can go on growing in that relationship and fellowship with Him. It's the same thing where there's a rift or sin between you and a friend. It's the same sort of thing. Whether it's you and a friend or you and a spouse, things aren't right between the two of you. It affects how you interact with each other. It affects the relationship, the fellowship. You may still call yourself a friend. The status hasn't changed, but the relationship is hindered. Well, our fellowship with God is also affected by our sin. So, in light of this reality, whenever we find our prayers not being answered, friends, we would do well to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. Now... We really don't have time to go through all the several other reasons why the Lord may not be answering any particular prayer of yours. But I I think the point of this passage certainly is that we need to be ready to examine ourselves to see whether or not it's disobedience that's the cause to our unanswered prayers. And if it's not obvious to us, which oftentimes it's not, we must all be ready to pray exactly what the psalmist prays in Psalm one thirty nine, twenty three through 24, where we know these verses very well, where he opens himself up before the Lord and he says to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Church family, we need to open ourselves up before the Lord in prayer that he would give us discernment about what areas in our lives need to be addressed. That he would grant us the grace to deal with it so that we'd be led into the way of everlasting. So we could get back up on the path and continue to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Let me say this also. I I think all of us can think of times when the Lord has answered our prayers despite the fact that we're entangled with some sin or another. We should be in those instances, and I think they're probably more rare than we like to admit, we should be thankful that the Lord's been merciful in those cases because that's exactly what it is. It's his mercy. He was being merciful to us. But friends, just because that happens once doesn't mean we should be presumptuous as the people of the Lord to expect that that's going to happen every time. Yes, our Lord is gracious and he always blesses us despite the fact that we're unworthy to receive his blessings. But we should never presume that he'll answer and hear our prayers when we are living in rebellion against him. So that's the connection between prayer and obedience. That's the first connection we see in our passage. I'd like to turn your attention to and consider how how this, this obedience or this love that we talk about in John 14, 15 relates now to obedience. How love relates to obedience. This is kind of the main thrust of the text where we'll spend probably the majority of our time. A very simple verse Here in John 14, 15, probably one you'd like to memorize, I'm sure, because it's simple. It says this, Jesus says this, from the words of Christ, Son of God himself, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my, that's pretty simple, isn't it? I don't know if if he could be more straightforward there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, there are a bunch of things we learn from this very, very tiny verse. We learn certainly that there's a connection between our love for Jesus and our obedience to his commands. The first thing I want us to look at in in relation to this is verse 15 is a description of a believer. Verse 15 is a description of a believer. Why do I say that? Well, look at this verse with me. Because we do well to note that the fact, uh, the verb that's translated to keep here in our text. Don't don't just shrug this off, okay? The the verb to keep here in our text is in the uh, indicative future active verb form. Now, the reason I mention that is because it does actually have an impact on how this verse is to be translated. Pay attention. Let's, let's go through this together. So often, this verse is translated, and we understand it to mean that if you love Jesus, then you ought to keep his commandments. That's how we translate this verse so often. If you love Jesus well, then you ought to keep his commandments. Well, taken this way, it's understood to be an imperative, a a command. Keeping the commandments is something we should strive to do or strive to show to prove that we love Jesus. That's what we get when we translate this verse this way. Now, I want to say, first of all, that's not a wrong way to think about this particular passage. There are actually plenty of other passages that make that very same, very good point. We should obey God's law in order to show our, our love for him and show and prove our gratitude for what he's done for us. That's a reality that aligns with God's word. So that's not necessarily a terrible interpretation here. But in this passage, that's not what is being conveyed to us. Rather, given that the verb is in the indicative future active form, the more literal translation is exactly what we have in the New American Standard Version. It is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Taken this way, obedience to Christ's commandments is not seen as something we ought to be doing. Instead, it becomes a description of what will be the case of every person who truly loves Jesus. Verse 15 is a description of a believer. The same thing is reiterated in in verses 21, 23, and 24 of this passage. Look at these verses. Verse 21 says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The description here is the one who has my commandments, the one who keeps my commandments. If that describes you, then it means that you love Jesus. Verses 23 and 24, again, descriptive. Look at what they say here. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my word. And the word which you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. In other words if you don't obey Jesus and keep his word then you don't love him. That's what the text is saying. It's crystal clear. Friends in other words if we truly love Jesus then it will necessarily be the case that our love for him will manifest itself in obedience to his commandments. That's what the text says. Church Anybody who says they love Jesus but shows no fruit of obedience to his commands is in a very bad place. True love for Jesus will, this is a promise from Christ, true love for Jesus will result in obedience to his commandments. It's a cause and effect relationship between the two. If you love Jesus, there will be evidence of your love for him in the way that you live. Another thing we notice about this verse is verse 15 isn't something new for the people of God. This isn't isn't a new doctrine that Jesus just decided to throw in there. This isn't something he just came up with out of the blue. Verse 15 isn't something new for the people of God. This is something that even the saints of old were taught continuously. I'm going to share a couple of passages with you from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy five ten. Note how similar the wording is with the particular passage we're, we're viewing in verse 15. This is at the end of the second commandment. It says, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's exactly what he says in verse 15. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, the Shema, as we have these familiar words that say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. That's the link there between the love for God and commandments of God. One more passage in Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, verse 9. Moses writes, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, this connection is ancient. It's old. This isn't brand new. Even Jesus, when he summarized the whole law in terms of of loving obedience, he did it in that way, didn't he? Love God, love your neighbor. That is the summary of the law. These two commandments summarized all the responsibilities that belong to us as they're expressed on both tablets of the Ten Commandments. See, church family, there is no place in the church of Christ for the belief that Christians are free to not obey God's law. In fact, any attempt to use the words of the Apostle Paul where he says there's no longer under law but under grace as an attempt to contradict or overturn what Jesus says here is a misunderstanding of the text. When Paul uses terms like that, he's saying we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, the guilt of the law as we learn in Sunday school studying Galatians. We're no no longer under the law as a covenant of works. Now we look to God's law as people who are in a covenant of grace as a way to live in response to what God has already done for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being under grace doesn't give us a license to sin. You need to hear that. This is a common misunderstanding what it means to be under grace. Being under grace does not permit you or give you license to sin. In fact, that's the next thing we'll learn about this in verse 15. To live without reverence to God's law, it's sinful. To live without reverence to God's law is sinful. Friends, you can't do it. You can't be true in your affirmation as knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you fail to understand that as the Lord, he's given you commandments for you to live by. Those commandments aren't suggestions. They're still commandments. It is by his desire... That you walk in his ways, not for you again to earn his favor or your salvation, but in response to what he's already given you. Church family, Jesus made it abundantly clear. If we love him, it will necessarily follow that we will obey his commandments. So we asked a question last week, studying uh, verse 12 through 14 of John 14. We asked the question at the end, the application question of all of this was, if, if you were to be convicted of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to support that? Would there be enough evidence to charge you with being a Christian if you were put on trial today? And the answer to that connects to this passage here, because the question would be whether or not you're obedient to God's commandments. That is the evidence, the fruit that you have that you actually belong to Jesus. Is there a trend in your life of being obedient to God's commandments? If there's not, if there never has been, friend, listen to me, I love you. You've got no reason to consider yourself a Christian or have assurance that you're a believer. If there's been no evidence of regeneration, new work, new life, new birth, new God, not no longer my own self as God, but God as my God, if there's no evidence you're being aligned to his commandments instead of your own, you've got no reason to believe or consider yourself a Christian this morning. It's crystal clear. This is the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish I came to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we ought to be careful in our approach in God's word. We're not steering saints astray. By trying to encourage them to believe or understand that they are no longer to look to God's law as a means of living. To do so, Jesus says, is to be called least in the kingdom of God. I'd also like to make this point. That our obedience to the people of God is not obedience to a set of impersonal set of laws. Or some impersonal code of conduct. This obedience is not impersonal. Not in any way, shape, or form. Instead, our obedience is personal obedience. It is an obedience to a personal God, a personal Savior. Right? Because what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's, that's personal. That's exactly what he means. He's speaking to his disciples. So if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, he's speaking to you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our obedience is to a person, not to just some impersonal code. Our obedience takes place in the context of a personal relationship. In fact, isn't it quite natural for us? Don't we do this naturally for us to serve and obey those whom we respect in our lives? Think about it in your own life. In the relationship that you have with others, there are some people in our lives whom we have such love and esteem for that if they were to ask us to do anything, we would do it in a heartbeat. In fact, it's usually the case that they don't even have to ask us to do anything. We willingly want to serve them already. We're already thinking of what might please them. Now, if that's the case in our personal relationship with some mere human whom we love and respect, how much more should this be in our relationship with our living and gracious God? Evidence of our love to God is seen in how we live in light of His Word. You cannot know God personally and not have a desire to live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. Those two things just don't go together, they're contradictory. This is important not only as it pertains to why we should obey, but also it instructs us on what we're to do when we're living in disobedience. Verse 15 has has instruction for us on what to do when we disobey. Do you recall that story uh, of Peter and Jesus? Uh, What Peter said to Jesus after, or Jesus said to Peter when he was about to be restored, after he'd fallen away, he rejected him three times, he denied him. And Peter brings him back at the end of the book of John, and and what does Jesus say? You recall, he didn't say, Peter, have you taken steps to make sure that this problem never happens again? He didn't ask Peter anything about what programs he might sign up for or what accountability partners he's going to have. What did he ask Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Friends, so many times when people come to me for counsel, I find myself coming to the same place time and time again, no matter what the sin might be. I'm amazed by the number of self-help programs and books that are available these days, or even the hundreds of books, even good books, good theology that are designed to help Christians deal with this sin or that sin. I'm in no way saying that there's not a place for those books or a place for those programs. They have no purpose at all or use for all in the life of the church. I'm not saying that, but I am saying I think most, if not all of our problems with sin can be resolved if we can do but one thing. Meditate on the gospel message. The secret or the solution of dealing with sin in our lives really does come down to knowing the gospel and how the gospel reveals the love of God for us. See, the more we understand the love of God toward us, the more we will be able to love God and keep his commandments the more we'll be able to desire to do what pleases him above what pleases our flesh. The more we love God, the more prone we are to see temptation in the same exact way Joseph saw temptation. We was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Remember what he said? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You will begin to start to see sin as the terrible thing that it is because you know God's love towards you. I know that sounds overly simplistic, but at the end of the day, the thing that you and I need more than anything is a love of God. We need to love Him stronger. We need to love Him more than we do right now. The only way you will have victory over sin is if we grow to love God more than we love our own flesh, more than our flesh loves sin. The way we grow in our love for God is by meditating on his word and hiding it in our hearts, and we know the essence of his word is the gospel message. All of scripture we're told by the Lord Jesus speaks exclusively of him. The last point Of all the scriptures focusing on Christ. That's where the message comes in. So it would presume then, if that's connection between love and obedience, we'd again ask. Do you see a connection between love and your obedience to God's command? I pray that you do. The final point of the sermon today, very quickly has to do with the relationship between this love and obedience as it relates to our assurance of salvation. This kind of feels a little bit like last week where this is... This is a heavy burden. Remember last week we talked about in John 12 how the work that a Christian does is pointing to the life of Christ and every Christian, if you're a Christian, your life will point towards Christ in some way. That's a daunting, burdensome feeling, but I want you to see the beauty that's found here at the end of our text, the relationship between this love and obedience as it relates to our assurance of salvation. There is a direct link between these things. The same John who wrote this gospel wrote In his first epistle, in in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he says this. He says, By this we know that we've come to know him. There it is. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Friends, no doubt, the most important thing to know in life is whether or not we've been saved by the gospel of Christ. There is nothing more important for you to know as a person than to know that you belong to Jesus. And what John tells us in this passage is that we can be assured we're saved by the evidence of God's love for us, which is seen in our obedience to his commands. In other words... Our obedience, again, is the fruit that assures us that we are loved by God. Obedience in our lives is the fruit that assures us that we're loved by God and that we belong to God and that we're His. So if you find that you've got no desire to live a life that's obedient or pleasing to God, if you find that there is no evidence that you are growing in your obedience to God's Word, friends... I love you and I say this lovingly, you should be very concerned. You see, there is more to being a Christian than merely saying that you're a Christian. There ought to be some evidence in your life that shows that you belong to Jesus. We talked about this already. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? What evidence is there that you're saved? What evidence is there in your life that would convict you of being a Christian? It's one of our applications. Again, this this week, same as it was last week. Do you have evidence in your life of being a Christian? Is there evidence in the way you handle yourself at work? Is there evidence in the way you interact with your neighbors? Is there evidence in the way you interact with others in the church? Now, listen... Like we said, just hearing those challenges, they're weighty. In fact, you can begin to get a little bummed out with yourself. You might be thinking, man, I'm not doing too well here, Pastor Cody. This is a problem. The, the evidence is lacking considerably. Friends, if that describes you, let me ask you another question that might bring some relief to your conscience. Do you have a desire at all in your life to be more like Jesus? Is there any desire for you in this? The desire to live to the glory of God. Friends, listen to me. If, if you have any of these desires, then it's a good indicator that there's hope for you. Why do I say that? I say that because the scriptures tell us clearly that the man left in unbelief, the natural man, has no desire at all to obey God's law. In fact, it's worse than that. Those who are outside of Christ hate God's law. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, 5 through 7. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So friends, If at the very least you have just the desire and the will to be more obedient to God's law, then then that may be evidence that there's a change in you. There may be evidence of the Spirit at work in your heart that you've been set apart by God. Last application question I want you to consider Do you struggle with sin? I mean, do you struggle with sin? We use that term a lot. Yeah, I'm really struggling today. And oftentimes what we mean by struggling is I'm, I love sin and I'm letting it reign over me and I've got no desire to actually fight it in any way, shape, or form. I'm asking the question, do you struggle with sin? Do you wrestle with it? Do you do battle with sin on a daily basis? Is there any fight in you? Is there war within your soul as you are aiming by the Spirit of God to put to death the sins of the flesh? Do you struggle with sin? If you find yourself in your life struggling against sin, fighting against it, wishing you had more victory over it, then friends, this too is a good sign because the natural man doesn't concern himself with these things. They're not troubled by their sin as it relates to God. These are certainly some ways to gain assurance of your salvation. But before we close, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in verse 16. And this ought to encourage you. Look what he says in verse 16. A lot of all of this, a lot of all we talked about today. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Anybody need help with this? (laughs) Be honest. He will give you another helper. And here's the thing about this helper. That he will be with you forever. See, Jesus knew the disciples were struggling in their understanding. Remember, in the context of this, he told them he's he's going away. He's going to prepare a place for them. And they're wondering, Jesus, our hearts are troubled with this. We don't want you to go anywhere. What does Jesus say here? They're struggling with the reality that Jesus is about to leave him. These things were heavy on their heart. Struggles that aren't too different from yours and mine. And Jesus knew that we couldn't be left to fend ourselves in our own attempts to love, obey, and understand what he's taught us in his word. So the good news is that Jesus has prayed for us. The good news is that Jesus is sending us the helper. And that helper will be with us forever. The Father has answered that prayer Because he has sent his Holy Spirit into the world, into the life of believers to be our helper. To be our advocate, our counselor, our comfort. And I love this because even writing this sermon I'm feeling like, man, I'm hounding myself, right? Like there are areas in my life where I'm not fully obedient to the Lord and and I'm beginning to question and wonder. And I'm reminded by verse 16 that there's someone in my corner. There's someone that's there for me as an advocate, as a comfort, who by his grace will not let me go on in disobedience. Who by his grace will reveal to me the word of God, will enlighten my eyes to the word of God so I can see God's truth and be repentant of sin and have assurance of my faith. Friends, it's the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit that for you? I pray that he is. That he's your advocate, he's your comfort, he's your counselor. Jesus has not left his followers behind as orphans, but he has made sure that we would not be left alone. He's ensured that we will have all that we need to do all that we would have us to do as his people. And friends, that's, that's good news. Next week, Lord willing, we will consider more of this gracious gift of the Holy Spirit that God given his church. Until then, why don't we stand and pray together? Father, we consider... Lord the weightiness again of this text or back to back weeks we have seen very what the world would define as radical Christianity. Father the lives that point towards the work of Christ and obedience to command as evidence that we love Christ. Lord those are weighty and we know left to the flesh left to ourselves there is nothing in us Lord, that could give us some sort of peace with you on our own. That, Lord, left to ourselves these two commandments, these two descriptions of believers would have us stand condemned. And, Lord, all the more it becomes a shout of praise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, because of Christ, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because Jesus being perfect and sinless came into this world as our substitution to die on our behalf, that you poured out the wrath we deserve for not loving you on our own and not having a life that reflects you. You poured all of the punishment for that on your son and you've given us his righteousness that we will be made more like Christ, that you will complete the good work which you began in faith in us. Father, those are, those are so, so wonderful promises for the believer. Lord, if there are any here this morning who are struggling with their faith and wrestling with their faith, Father, I pray that, Lord, you'd convict them if there's no evidence in their life that they belong to Christ, Lord, I pray that they would repent and they would trust in you. Father, for the believer, we pray your encouragement to us each day as we, we know we have a desire to obey you. Would you fuel that? Would you put fire to the flame for Christ and Lord? Would we live each day considerably seeing your growth in us? Considerably seeing that we are being made more like Christ and it's something that's not of us it's something that's from the Lord Lord as we consider all these things we are thankful for your helper the Holy Spirit Lord what would we do without you dwelling in us what would we do without your constant reminder conviction of sin pointing us towards the scriptures and lightening our eyes toward the word Father we praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit Lord, you do work in us now. Lord, as we come to our time of reflection and praise, as we consider this, may we respond to this in pure worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.